Later. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Let's watch a full length movie on YouTube with Mike Spiegelman. Let's watch a full length movie on YouTube with Mike Spiegelman. It's been German strudels. You should follow me on Twitter. It's jokes de Carl. Uh, that's the French duh, not the <laughs> Now let's watch a full-length movie on YouTube with Michael. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shitface McRat. <laughs> my friends out at Mutiny Radio. Chester Cashcock here, giving you my love and regards as well as Moofy's over there. And you know, anytime I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and...
weekly review with roman today it's tuesday october 8th yes it's tuesday this will be played also on a friday october 11th due to some scheduling conflicts and things that have come up i am recording this a few days early and it just so happens that it's, there's a big today's like the big day at the supreme court because uh, the introductions to the show also talked a little bit about that you can also if you follow me on twitter i've retweeted a lot the most recent piece we played was a senior staff attorney gabriel arkles uh from aclu and if you follow at aclu on twitter you can hear gabriel's words and hear more from them and then also the previous there's lots of folks who came to the supreme court to protest and so that's what we heard before then and this was shared by jason l walker who you can follow on twitter at lamar walks 11 and there's a lot more footage out there. And also, I'm going to get to an article right away. It's, uh, it's things are pretty fucking scary. Things have been scary for a while. Oh, by the way, hi, it's a radio program. That's not very funny. Sometimes it is. Today, probably not. I'm feeling exhausted in many ways. 
and I also think it's crucial just to share what's happening in the world. As sad as it may be, it's also interesting to go back and listen to previous episodes and hear how things have kind of led up to where we are now and to have an understanding of it. So this article was published today by Jessica Mason Piclo, and it came out on Rewire News. And I'm going to get the microphone all ready here. And you can find this at rewire.news. Uh, after two hours of arguments, five votes could decide the future of LGBTQ rights. What a, what a timeline to be living in, everybody. The conservative wing of the Roberts court appears ready to take a sledgehammer to LGBTQ rights, assuming they can keep Justice Neil Gorsuch on board. The U.S. Supreme Court's 2015 decision in Obergefell versus Hodges represented a significant but potentially fleeting shift in LGBTQ rights. Led by conservative Justice Anthony Kennedy, Obergefell recognized the indignity LGBTQ people experience when the law treats them differently simply for who they are. Despite being a fundamentally conservative opinion grounded in traditional notions of partnership and family, Obergefell was revolutionary for its jurisprudential embrace of the humanity of LGBTQ people. The legal landscape looks very different for LGBTQ rights four years later. The Trump administration has taken a sledgehammer to the slow and steady progress made during the Obama administration of recognizing the promise of Obergefell and my apologies if I'm mispronouncing that. I feel like I am. And recognizing LGBTQ rights. And on Tuesday, during oral arguments for the three cases that ask whether federal employment discrimination law protects LGBTQ employees, the conservative wing of the Roberts Court appeared ready to do the same, assuming they can keep Justice Neil Gorsuch on board. The first two cases on the Roberts Court's docket revolved around the question of whether prohibitions on discrimination on the basis of sex under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 include discrimination on the basis of a person's sexual orientation. The cases were combined under Bostock versus Clayton County, Georgia. In Bostock, the plaintiff alleges he was fired from his job as a child welfare services coordinator for a Georgia County's juvenile court system after his employer found out he is gay. In May 2018, a three-judge panel from the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit ruled in an unpublished per curiam decision that Bostock couldn't sue his employer because the Title VII doesn't ban discrimination based on sexual orientation. Bostock wants the Supreme Court to reverse the 11th Circuit's decision, which his attorneys argue is wrong and in conflict with the majority of recent federal court decisions that do recognize sexual orientation discrimination under Title VII. The third case before the court seeks to answer whether Title VII applies to, claim, to claims of discrimination based on gender identity and transgender status in RG and GR Harris Funeral Homes, Inc. versus Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled on behalf of Amy Stevens, a Michigan funeral director who was fired once, once she began transitioning at work. The Roberts Court had previously avoided answering the question of whether discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation is discrimination because of sex under Title VII, but during the arguments Tuesday showed no such reluctance. 
This despite the fact that the Roberts Court announced last week it was going to try something new this term. Counsel before the court now get to make their arguments uninterrupted for approximately two minutes before the justices jump in with their questions. That means that Stanford law professor and attorney Pamela Carlin, who argued on behalf of the employees in their cases, had the opportunity to clearly set forth why firing a man who dates a man is discrimination because of sex. It's a startling difference to hear the attorneys be able to frame their case before the court without immediate interruption. Whether it changes the outcome remains to be seen. But Carlin did her best to stay focused on the argument that sexual orientation discrimination is by its nature discrimination because of sex. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg had the first question for Carlin and asked about the original public understanding of sex discrimination when Title VII first passed. What role, if any, should that original understanding play in how the justices resolve the dispute before them? Ginsing, uh, excuse me, Ginsburg pressed, none, Carlin answered. Just look at the words of the statute. Carlin insisted, when Title VII passed in 1964, it was the days of madmen, she said, where sexual harassment, now a commonly understood form of sex discrimination under Title VII, was not recognized. Ginsburg's question was pointed for a reason. The heart of the dispute of these cases is a textual dispute, a fight over the meaning of the text because of sex in the statute. Conservatives, including Solicitor General Noel Francisco, who argued in defense of the employer's in these cases, insist the text of the statute doesn't support finding that sexual orientation or gender identity claims are covered in part because of the original public understanding of the harm Congress was trying to remedy when it first passed Title VII. That original public meaning of Title VII, Francisco and the other conservative attorneys representing the employers did, they employees said, only prohibits employers from treating one sex better or worse than the other. Nothing more, nothing less. It's a deceptively simple argument that has dangerous consequences. As federal courts recognized sexual orientation discrimination over the years, they did so by building on the idea that sex stereotyping can be a form of sex discrimination covered under Title VII. The court reaffirmed that principle in the 1998 case, Onicle versus Sundowner Offshore Services, authored by Justice Antonin Scalia. In Oncal, a male employee said he was forcibly subjected to sex-related humiliating actions by his male co-workers, including assault and rape threats, for not being macho enough. Ankel is a case study in same-sex harassment. In finding that Title VII covered instances of same-sex harassment, despite the text of Title VII being arguable, being arguable silent on the topic, Justice Scalia wrote, Statutory prohibitions often go beyond the principal evil to cover reasonably comparable evils, which is ultimately the provisions of our laws rather than the principal concerns of our legislatures, legislators by which we are governed. In other words, according to Justice Scalia uh, in Uncal, Title VII demands courts go beyond the original public misunderstanding the public understanding of the law to cover these those reasonably comparable evils of sexual orientation and gender identity discrimination. According to Scalia and the majority in Oncal, it doesn't matter what the exact words of Title VII say or even what the lawmakers at the time thought they were covering. What matters is that the language of Title VII itself is expansive enough to contemplate social change. 
And Title VII does this by recognizing that firing an employee because of their failure to conform to stereotypical notions of sex, whether because of sexual orientation or gender identity, are by their definition sex discrimination. Congress doesn't need to speak now on that question. They did so in 1964 by passing Title VII. It is analytically impossible to fire an employee based on that employee's status as a transgender person without being motivated, at least in part, by the employee's sex. The Sixth Circuit states in Harris, discrimination because of sex inherently includes discrimination against employees because of a change in their sex. On Tuesday, Solicitor General Francisco took the opposite view and argued that the only way to make Title VII cover gender identity and sexual orientation discrimination is for Congress to amend the law to explicitly say that it does. That's an argument that Justices Samuel Alito and Chief Justice Roberts latched onto immediately. Roberts noted that the states that had passed their own version of Title VII had explicitly stated protections for sexual orientation, discrimination, as well as... Um, excuse me, had explicitly stated protections for sexual orientation discrimination as well as exemptions in place for religious objectors. Justice Alito even took the end of Carlin's time not to let her answer a question, but to accuse the employees of trying to change the meaning of Title VII outright. If Justice Roberts is true to precedent, then next summer the court will rule that Title VII covers both sexual orientation and discrimination, excuse me, that covers both sexual orientation discrimination and gender identity discrimination, and Roberts will join the majority in doing so. There is no other conclusion that remains both true to the text, to the statute, and the cases that followed. But Roberts is a conservative ideologue and not a scholar of precedent. He also laid the groundwork for reading sexual orientation and gender discrimination protections out of Title VII in Obergefell. Reading his dissent now from the bench Roberts was clearly angry about the outcome of the case. He accused the majority of acting out of political motivation, not legal reasoning, and suggested that those celebrating the decision were doing so simply because their side had won. This court is not a legislature, Roberts wrote in his dissent in Obersfell. The majority's decision is an act of will, not legal judgment. Conservatives picked up Roberts' mantra of the court, and I'm going to take a self-care moment, as I sometimes do, uh, on the show, I'm going to stop from reading the rest of this article. Um, I appreciate the coverage of it. You also can check it out at Rewire News, uh, rewire.news. And um, yeah, that's a lot. It's it's a hell of a lot. And also doing this show midweek feels like a lot. So we will see what happens. And perhaps by the time this is played again on Friday, we'll have some more news for you. Now, oftentimes I start the show with a lot of music and then a rant, and I'm feeling too exhausted. I'm emotionally exhausted. I'm f- physically exhausted. I'm psychically exhausted. I am just, ugh. <sighs> so then why am I here? Well, I'd rather be here than not here, if that makes sense. I'd rather share some news and always interested in learning more, sharing more, and perhaps all the listeners out there, if there's one piece of information or hope or something that you gain from listening to this week's episode. Uh, hopefully that this will have... Uh, I'll have done my part. Wow, I'm tired. Okay, it is not even that late. I'm going to play some more music, and I intentionally was going to start playing the show with this music, and then I had a Peter Gabriel song on. I'm like, oh, that's a good song. I'll just leave that on. So 
Next up, I've uh, been going through the record collection here at Mutiny Radio, and records are great. So I've been trying to play some of these on the air. Here's one. It's a record from Joan Jett called The Hit List, and it looks like that's some uh, cover songs. So we're going to play some Joan Jett. Hopefully I'll get in a better mood after I hear some really good music. And then afterwards, we've got some more news for everybody. So please do stay tuned.
And welcome back to Weekly Review. It's Roman. I'm still pretty tired. Uh, I'm a little bit more excited, I guess, because I listened to the first Joan Jett song. Now I'm kind of like, eh. I'm tired. And I'm here. The show is very DIY, and I appreciate that. Sometimes it's good just to be true. And I wanted to share a resource for folks, Trans Lifeline, which is a great resource. Uh, I want to encourage folks to donate to and also share info about if you know folks who need someone to talk to. It's a hotline that is was created by and is run by and operated by trans folks for trans folks. And we've had the founders on the show a couple years ago, Greta and Nina, and wanted to just plug that organization once more you can also follow them on twitter at trans lifeline and they tweeted today the supreme court is hearing a pivotal case on trans rights this morning we know that news like this negatively impacts the mental health of trans people okay that explains why i've been feeling extra crappy uh if you are trans or questioning and need to talk we're here for you at 877-565-8860 in the u.s or 877-330-6366 in Canada. So again, you can follow Trans Lifeline at Trans Lifeline. Please do donate um, to them if you're able and spread the word. Also follow them on Twitter. Um, I believe, it's a weird segue, but I'm going into the next thing. We do have the Pissed Off Voters Guide for November 5th from the San Francisco League of Pissed Off Voters. I agree with a lot of the information that they share. And I'm someone who, recognizing that voting can only do so much, and at the same time, it's easier to organize when you don't have fascists in office. Hopefully, all we can all agree on that. So they have a few voting logistics to share with people. And September, nope, not September, October. This is This is one show for the books, I'll tell you. So that was yesterday. Uh, Early voting started at City Hall, and it's happening from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Monday through Friday. If you're someone who votes and you are unable to go on Election Day and or you don't want to mail something in, drop by City Hall. Uh, Be prepared to go through the metal detectors because that's just something that happens there. All right. And on October 21st, it's the deadline to register to vote if that's something that you want to do. October 26th and 27th and November 2nd and 3rd, it's the weekend early voting in City Hall from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Okay. Oh, the weekend, right. And then November 2nd to the 5th, it's early voting, which starts at SFSU Towers Conference Center. And there's 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. on weekends, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. on weekdays. On November 5th, it's election day. Polls open 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. If you're in line by 8, you can vote. Where's your polling place? Why am I yelling? I'm not meaning to yell. I'm Call 311-CSFelections.org or just go to City Hall. Where's... Okay, I already answered that question. Non-citizens can vote on Board of Education. Parents and caregivers of school-aged children can vote for school board candidates. Former felons can vote. Even if you've committed a felony, you can vote as long as you're off parole. Don't let the man disenfranchise you. And again, this is from the Pissed Off Voter's Guide. Next up, slackers can vote. Election Day voter registration. Miss the 1021 deadline to register to vote? Head directly to City Hall. Do not pass go to register and vote right up through Election Day. From November 2nd to 5th, you can also register and vote at SFSU Towers Conference Center. 
Now get out there and make us proud. Next up, youth can vote. If you're 16 or 17, pre-register and your registration will be activated automatically when you turn 18. Next up, local offices. For mayor, no endorsement. Board of Supervisors, District 5, Dean Preston. And again, plugging Dean Preston, I read an interview in the Bay Area Reporter, and he mentioned that he was all in favor of free muni. So that pretty much, he's definitely the more progressive candidate between him and uh, Valley Brown. So yes, Dean Preston for District 5. City Attorney, Dennis Herrera. District Attorney, Chesa Bowden. And we had Chesa on the show a couple weeks ago. We'll, we'll be replaying that interview a little bit closer to November 5th. So again, for District Attorney, vote for Chesa Bodin. Public Defender, Manahar Raju. Sheriff, no endorsement. Treasurer, no endorsement. Board of Education, no endorsement. Community College Board, Ivy Lee. Local propositions, they say yes on Prop A, which is a $600 million affordable housing bond. Yes on Prop B, representation for disabled and aging adults. Hell fucking no, Prop C. Uh, let Jewel write vape law for the children. So that was, yeah, no on Prop C. Yes, on Prop D, teeny tiny traffic tax on Lyft and Uber. Yes, on Prop E, finally, affordable housing for education and, excuse me, for educators and families. And yes, Prop F, sunlight on dark money. Okay. Open up animosity. Yeah. Okay. Open up this guide for highlights on the most important things on the ballot and check out our online guide for the full Monty. And you can do that at http colon forward slash forward slash the league sf.org now i'm starting to have some fun i'm opening it up there's a lot of stuff there and you can check it out and also this has been paid for by the san francisco league of pissed off voters financial disclosures available at sfethics.org groovy what's up next okay so ellen degeneres who i was in high school and she came out and it was like a big deal and i remember writing her a letter being like, thanks for coming out. That's great for high school gay kids like me. And then cut to decades later. And I mean, beyond decades later, but you know, when sometimes folks make it, they end up leaving a lot of people behind. So recently she was photographed at a Dallas Cowboys game, which is gross enough as is. And uh, to not only be like not boycotting the NFL, but to then be going to Dallas Cowboys game. Anyway, she ended up sitting next to George W. Bush and then her photo was taken. And then she like tried to defend herself being like, oh, it's okay to be friends with people who have different views. And everyone's like, he's a fucking war criminal. That's not just like, you know, enjoying different types of food or having different types of, you know, favorite colors or different personality traits. It's like, no, this person's uh, actions are responsible for the deaths of millions of people and creating policy that has harmed who knows how many folks. So uh, maybe not be friends with, with him. Maybe that's, is that asking too much? Apparently it is. And that's how that everything gets normalized in this country. When you want to know how we end up with a fuck face, like 45 in office, just look at the previous fuck faces in office. Look at the previous war criminals, Democrats and Republicans alike who have caused a lot of harm to people. And as long as they get away with their crimes, then people are going to continue committing these crimes and continue getting people into these horrible wars, which, of course, poor folks end up paying for more than anyone else. Oh, wow. I talked myself into a depression again. Oof. 
All right, next up, I'm not going to read that headline because yikes. Okay, <laughs> we'll see how that one goes. Um, along with all this Ellen and, and W nonsense, there's an article that was shared once more, and it came out in March of this year from splinternews.com, written by Hamilton Nolan. Perhaps I've read it before on the show, and perhaps I'll be reading it again, or maybe it's the first time. Excuse me. Of course successful people want everyone to be nice. By Hamilton Nolan, March 5th, 2019. Why do wealthy celebrities always decry haters above all other evils? Why do successful people at the top of their fields counsel those less prestigious than them to value professional comedy and civility above all? For a very obvious reason. It is easy to feel love for humanity when your own life is grand. If you wake up in a soft bed and a nice home, have a good job and a healthy bank account, and enjoy the prestige, earned or unearned, accorded to those in high positions, you have little reasons to be mad. All of the things that people want, you have. You have physical, emotional, and economic security. You have the adulation of peers and admirers. You have the opportunity to fully realize your dreams. Life is good. It is interesting to see how attitudes change for the small minority of humans able to attain these high-status lifestyles. Clearly, they are viewing life from a different perspective than most. Whereas the average person is forced to spend a good deal of time contemplating problems from mundane to existential that in some way affect their lives and how to solve them, the people at the top of the world are under no such obligation. Their vision, their vision need not be clouded by such concerns. Their needs are met. They are free to direct their mental energy towards achieving ever higher levels of self-realization. Though they may recognize the world's problems in an abstract way, they are not true obstacles for them. There is nothing easier than embracing love as a value when you have nothing left to hate. There is nothing easier than embracing freedom when nothing is holding you back. To say, we should all be kind to one another and get along when you are sitting at the very top of the pyramid is not an embrace of magnanimity. Excuse me, magnanimity. It is an embrace of self-interest. Once you have what you need, once you have what everyone else wants, declaring the cutthroat race for achievement over in favor of universal love will conveniently ensure that your gains remain locked in. Now that I'm enjoying the benefits of fame, let's stop all the haters. Now that I'm enjoying the benefits of wealth, let's stop all the jealousy. Now that I'm enjoying the benefits of high career status, let's stop being critical of those at the top. Let's all get along, everyone equally, from me at the very top to you at the very bottom. This is the root of the tedious cries for civility that periodically rack our body politic. Of course, those who have won in the current order of things value civility above all. Civility means nothing changes. Civility means anger is tamped down. To the extent that the incredible lives of society's winners are driven by structural injustices, racism, inequality, luck, being born in the right place at the right time to win the lottery of life, Civility will cool the tempers of those who are on the wrong side of the same metrics. In a just world, the most successful people would be the most outraged at injustice. Oh, wow, that would be like me or something. <laughs> because they would be able to see most clearly the absurd gap between their own lives and the lives of millions of others who have had the same intrinsic value as humans, but who are not so lucky. <sighs> 
but such a world would require that people who achieve the greatest luxuries act against their own self-interest in recognition that life is not fair. That unfortunately is not how the human mind tends to work. It is more common that our own lives change, our perspectives change, and it becomes increasingly harder to imagine the perspective of others whose experiences grow farther and farther away until they might as well be inexplicable dreams. There is nothing like the sweet taste of the good life to convince us that everyone deserves the, the good life as long as it does not require us to sacrifice what we already have. This dynamic explains, for example, the fascination of very rich people with charter schools as a cause rather than with redistribution of wealth. To promote education is to promote the fantasy that all those poor people can one day get the same things that you have. This allows you to maintain your own status while offering the dream of pulling everyone else up to you. The alternative would be for you to give up some of what you have in order to help others. Unfortunately, that would require a meaningful sacrifice from you, so the idea is socialist, outrageous class war. The same dynamic is behind the fetishization of professional status, rather than actual merit, by those who have already achieved a high professional status. They have an inherent interest in a system in which their coveted positions are handed down to those who pay them the most deference. If I did it, anyone can, is the greatest lie told by those who have secured a level of success that will, by definition, only ever be available to a tiny, fortunate minority. My life is good. Yours is bad. Don't think about why. Just smile. Can't we all just get along? Me from the penthouse and you from the gutter? Wow. Whew. So again, if you'd like to reread that, if you'd like to share it with folks... Uh, you can check it out at splinternews.com. Again, it was written by Hamilton Nolan. Of course, successful people want everyone to be nice. Okay, how about some Joan Jet? Sounds like a plan. We'll be back uh, after this.
welcome back to the weekly review with Roman. Yay. It is, again, currently Tuesday, October 8th. This will be played on October 11th. Wow, I am so tired. And I've got more news stories for you all. So that's great. Oh, man. Okay. <laughs> Positive news here. And I guess the positive news, news excuse me, <laughs> interesting Freudian slip there. Positive news is when folks speak up and rise up in ways to stop evil people from doing their evil things. So that is one story we have here. The uh, acting Sec secretary of Homeland Security was shouted off the stage at an immigration event at Georgetown University's law school on Monday. And that person's name is Kevin McLeanan. McLeanan. And there's an article in Huffington Post. It's also posted all over Twitter. And also, Never Again Action has been sharing a lot of info as well. And this was written by Nick Visser. Let's get to the audio, first of all. And then we'll get to the story. And they're playing uh, an ad. And that's... Nope. That's not what we're here for. So I'm going to refresh the page. And now let's. Before we go, Acting we go. Homeland Security Secretary Kevin McLeanan had a tough start to his day. Protesters Aww. shouted him down in, at an immigration policy forum at Georgetown University earlier today. Listen to that. So many times they shouted him down that Acting Security Secretary eventually walked out. When children are under attack, what do we do? As a career law enforcement professional, I've dedicated my career uh, to protecting the right to free speech and all the values we hold dear in America uh, from, from all threats. So, <laughs> but also given that this is primarily an audience of immigration lawyers, advocates, and law students, uh, to also talk about some of the fundamental issues we face with the current legal framework and its ability to address large-scale immigration flows. Okay. Thank you. McLean's frustration bubbled to the surface last week when he went on the record with the Washington Post. He said he is in an uncomfortable position Aww. because he does not have control over the tone and message of the administration's immigration policy. It was an extremely rare example of a cabinet-level official complaining about how politicized his department has become. In that Washington Post story, the White House praised McElhinney's job performance, Ugh. but they did not say why it has not nominated him for secretary. Ugh. And and its ability to um also just like politicize. I ugh. Okay, I'm gonna read the article because what a what a fucking tool. Okay. So a group of protesters interrupted McLean about for about eight minutes at Georgetown's annual immigration law and policy conference, leaving the official visibly frustrated as he tried to read a speech about the Trump administration's hardline policies on the southern border with Mexico. And of course, a reminder that borders are imaginary. And if you were frustrated trying to read a speech being interrupted, imagine how people feel having their family torn apart from them. And... <sighs> being assaulted, being tortured. 
An activist bearing a sign reading Stand with Immigrants shouted, Hate is not normal, and why are you listening to this crook? As others read off the names of migrant children who have died in Customs and Border Protection custody. They also have a link from C-SPAN. After the third interruption, McAllenan thanked the event's organizer and left the stage. Department of Homeland Security lambasted the activist in a statement Monday saying attendees, they can go fuck themselves. That's um, my statement towards the Department of Homeland Security who are continuing to do this evil and harm people. And... Credo Action, the group that organized the protest, rejected any criticism of its actions. However, saying the institutions that feature Trump administration officials could expect to hear from us. No Trump henchmen should be given a platform to spread hatred or defend the racist, xenophobic policies put into place by Donald Trump and Stephen Miller. Uh, Nicole Regalado, Credo's campaign director, said in a statement. Institutions that elevate the architects and enforcers of Trump's hate and normalize that cruelty can expect to hear from us. <sighs> Moving along in the article, just going to share. The White House has also said last month it planned to slash the U.S. refugee resettlement program by nearly half. Uh, and... A little bit more information there. So big thank you to the activists for showing up and shutting that down. Speaking of activists sh uh, showing up and shutting shit down, Harvard College Business Group cancels sponsorship with ICE contractor Palantir after backlash. This is from the Harvard Crimson. I very rarely read pieces from the Harvard Crimson. However, here we go. This was posted 18 hours ago by Shira S. Aviona and Delano R. Franklin, Crimson staff writers. The Harvard undergraduate BGLTQ Business Society canceled a sponsorship with software firm Palantir Technologies last week after facing student backlash over the company's contract with Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Hubs publicized the sponsorship with Palantir, which included an ethical decision-making exercise slated for October 10th over their email list October 3rd. The next day, the organization announced they had canceled the event. Palantir has faced criticism from both immigration advocacy groups and its own employees for its work with ICE in recent months. The firm supplies ICE with an intelligence gathering system that critics allege enables agents to deport increased numbers of undocumented immigrants. Hours after its initial email, Hub sent a follow-up message stating that several students had voiced concerns. At first, the organization announced it would donate any funds gained through the partnership to an immigration-related charity. That evening and the next day, students criticized Hubs over the, the Queer Students and Allies Organization email list. The Hubs board then responded over the QSA list, saying they had changed their minds and decided to cancel the partnership entirely. When a member brought up Palantir's relationship with ICE, we had initially thought we could allow them to come to campus and then donate the proceeds to an undocumented charity. But we recognize now that bringing Palantir to campus is harmful no matter where proceeds go, and that it is unfair to students and antithetical to the diverse communities at Harvard, they wrote over the email list. It was a mistake from the beginning, and honestly, board was deeply divided about whether to proceed with this sponsorship altogether, even as of last night, they added. Hubs's board wrote in an email statement to the Crimson that they regret the partnership with Palantir. We actually canceled the event, and Hubs will no longer be hosting it or working with Palantir as a sponsor until their work with ICE changes. We sincerely apologize to anyone who was hurt by the prospect of this event, and we hope our actions remedied the situation, the statement reads. 
and you can go on and read a little bit more. So uh, one more quote here. Uh, QSA is proud to stand with undocumented immigrants, Kim wrote. And that's the QSA co-chair, Angela E. Kim, from class of 2021. We appreciate that Hubs listened to community feedback and decided not to partner with Palantir for this event. In light of this, we encourage students and organizations to be actively aware of the companies they choose to work with and support. College students across the country have taken issue with Palantir's undergraduate outreach efforts in recent months. Palantir tried to host a similar ethics tabletop exercise at Duke last month, where it was met with student protests. A petition calling on students to refuse jobs, job offers from Palantir has garnered more than 2,000 signatures from students attending schools, including Harvard, Stanford, and Yale. Whew. So again, this article is found at the thecrimson.com and came out 18 hours ago, which would be early on the 8th or late on October 7th. Okay, we're going to keep pushing along. Oh, my goodness. 700-plus arrested as Extinction Rebellion protests demand climate action. There's also been protests happening around the world, and I mentioned that a little bit last Friday, and uh, th there hasn't been as much news coverage of it, but I wanted to share that now, at least in case we don't get to it this week. Uh, more than 700 activists from Sydney to New York City have been arrested in coordinated climate protests across the globe as activists with Extinction Rebellion shut down streets and occupied public landmarks to demand action on the climate crisis. Nearly 300 were arrested in London after taking over 11 sites in the Westminster area. In New York City, nearly 90 activists were arrested after staging a die-in on Wall Street, pouring fake blood on the iconic bull statue outside the New York Stock Exchange. Dozens were also arrested in Amsterdam, Vienna, and Madrid. In Brisbane, Australia, an activist hung from a story bridge in a hammock for six hours. Activists also took to the streets in Chile, Colombia, and Mexico. And we'll have more on Extinction Rebellion's ongoing protests after headlines. That's, the, that's from Democracy Now! And so you can check that out, democracynow.org, um, from October 8th. There's also... <sighs> lots lots more happening we're gonna go back to playing some music and we'll be back uh, after this
I'm thinking like if I was the And welcome back to the weekly review. I was gonna do a try to do a smooth transition there, the last song on the album, going into Clip from Democracy Now. I'm getting a bit tired. I think I am tired. But I did want to share this uh, about the strike that's still going on um, from UAW at Democracy Democracy Now. So let's see here. Are we right? I saw the Saw movie. And uh, let's see if we can play it. Then with Juan Gonzalez. About 48,000 workers at General Motors have entered their fourth week on strike. It's the longest national walkout at GM by the United Auto Workers in nearly 50 years. Workers are seeking higher pay, protection of their health care benefits, greater job security, and a commitment from GM to build more cars and parts in the United States. This is Steve Gorowski, a striking GM worker in Bowling Green, Kentucky. We've got a company that had $35 billion in profits in the last few years. We've got temporaries that have been here over seven years and are still temporaries, and they're asking for more temporaries. They're moving our plants out of country. They're taking them to Mexico and to China. And now they're asking for concessions on our uh, health care. I don't know about you, but I, that's the reason I took this job. I used to have my own drywall company. I took it for the benefits. On Sunday, UAW officials announced they'd rejected the company's latest offer saying negotiations had, quote, taken a turn for the worse. In a letter to union members, UAW Vice President Terry Didis wrote, quote, "...the company's response did nothing to advance a whole host of issues that are important to you and your families. It did nothing to provide job security during the term of the agreement." We're joined now by Steve Frisk, striking GM worker, former president of UAW Local 744. He's currently a union steward, joining us from a studio in Minneapolis. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Steve Frisk. Talk about the demands of the union. I mean, this is historic. It is the longest strike in nearly, what, half a century against GM. That is correct. Uh, just, just to clarify that, I'm from Local 722. Um, but that's okay, no problem. Um, our, our biggest issue is obviously, uh, you, you heard the gentleman there from Bowling Green touch on some of it. Um, moving work out of the country, um, the temporary workers, uh, those are our two biggest issues right now, and also health care, which has become an issue since we went out on strike. Um, 10 years, 11 years ago, this uh, General Motors was going out of business. And they were saved by, by two in, uh, groups of people, their employees, and uh, even more so the taxpayer of this country. Um, if it wasn't for them, they would have been gone. Uh, we reopened our contract voluntarily and uh, gave up a lot of stuff, cost of living increases. We took over retirees' health care and benefits. Uh, that was an obligation of General Motors, and the UAW took that over to uh, alleviate and hopefully bring them back from the brink of bankruptcy. Um, so be we move forward 10 years, and they've made record profits for the last three years of uh, just over $35 million. Um, and they have never given any of those things back to us that we voluntarily gave up. Not only that, but they want to take more away now. Um, 
they're moving uh, the work, like I said, out of the country, which should really irritate the taxpayer of this country who bailed them out with the idea that we're going to keep work here in the United States and have people work here and become productive members of society, and now we're moving it out of the country. Uh, obviously, the, the, earlier the gentleman said uh, from Bowling Green, Mexico and China, those are the two biggest ones. In fact, China has more uh, General Motors employees now than does the United States. Um, this is our, our biggest issue, and, and, and then the real top issue is temporary employees and how they use them, uh, and uh, there's no path for them to come to full-time employment. Um, some of these assembly plants have had temporary employees on their, on their roles, like that gentleman said, for almost seven years. Um, they make just over half of what uh, legacy employees of, of UAWGM make. Um, they have very few benefits. No vacation time off unless it's pre-approved. They have three unpaid vacation days a year, and they have to be pre-approved. So life happens, children get sick, weather, flat tires. Uh, these things happen in life, and, and these people live on pins and needles every day just hoping something doesn't go wrong. Because if they, they can be dismissed for any two minor shop rule violations, they can be dismissed, which well, means being late or anything else. So it, it, it's, it's not right when this country's making record profits to treat their employees who bailed them out and saved them the way they're treating their employees today. Oh, Steve Frisk, over the weekend, there were some indications that there was progress in the talks, at least on issues like wages, uh, but that uh, apparently one of the big sticking points has been this issue of whether GM will bring back some jobs from Mexico to the U.S. Could you talk a little more about uh, the impact of the GM production in Mexico? Because we often hear President Trump talking about how Mexico and China are stealing our jobs, but it's really the multinational U.S. companies. Companies that are making decisions to go into places like China uh, and Mexico uh, for greater profits. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's cheaper labor. I mean, that's 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 the bottom line here. Uh, an auto worker in Mexico makes just under three dollars an hour, um, and they're not unionized. Uh, they're not allowed to basically by its government control unions, and it's uh, they really don't have a say in anything. Um, the biggest issue is, you know, I've had people say to me, "Why, you know, well, they're they're working for a lot cheaper." And I, my argument always is, "Are the vehicles any cheaper that are coming from Mexico?" They're not. It's just the profits are going up to the top. Uh, the, they're not working with their employees, uh, obviously. If you look at Ford, Ford has an actually a, a pretty good relationship with the UAW. Um, in fact, the CEO came out a few years ago and said if it wasn't for the UAW, Ford would have been bankrupt. They sacrificed and saved us in our darkest hour. Uh, we did the same for General Motors, but obviously uh, they don't seem to understand that or they just don't seem to think that that's, uh, they have to work with their employees anymore. And, and, and it's very upsetting. Um, these jobs were saved to keep them in this country, and now we're moving them out. Uh, the last uh, study that was done, uh, Chrysler has 92 percent utilization in this country of their facilities. Um, Ford had 82, and General Motors was right about 70, and I've heard that's actually gone down even more now in this last year. Um, so you look at the plants that are closing, Lordstown, Ohio, Detroit Hamtramck. We have a couple transmission plants, uh, one in Baltimore and a few other in, uh, in Michigan. And these people are out of work. Or they have to, if they have enough seniority, they have to transfer. Um, 
and that's, people don't realize what it does to families. Um, I'm one of those people that worked in an assembly plant. I worked at Janesville Assembly in Janesville, Wisconsin, and that plant closed down at the end of 2008. Um, I had to move to where I am now, Hudson, Hudson, which I was lucky because I'm not too far from home, uh, a little over four hours, but I had to leave my wife and kids down there for almost six years because we couldn't sell our house because the whole economy in that area just, just went under. Um, it causes a lot of damage to families, a lot of divorces, uh, fathers and mothers not seeing their kids. Um, and they don't seem to understand that or they don't really seem to care. Um, it, like you said on Saturday, it sounded like we were going to uh, have a tentative agreement. It, it sounded really good, and then it went south overnight. Um, so we're waiting. I guess GM came out with a secret proposal last night to the UAW. Uh, we do not know what the contents of that is yet. Um, so we're going to wait and see what our leadership says, and uh, hopefully we're making progress forward again instead of taking two steps back like we did this weekend. So Let me ask you, in terms of the uh, of the, uh, the leverage that the United Auto Workers have, given the corporate America's uh, 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 move to go to just-in-time production, uh, when do you figure will be the time when General Motors will be forced to shut down its entire uh, chain of operations as a result of the fact that it can't get these cars uh, produced by you here in the United States? Well, it, we're already seeing some uh, some fallout down. Uh, they closed the Silo Mexico uh, plant, which makes the Silverado and uh, the Sierra. So that has been closed because of the lack of parts. And now I heard uh, their other major uh, facility down there has uh, had some shutdowns, too. So it's starting to have a trickle-down effect. I, I, I guess it's coming to a point where GM's got to make a decision on, is it worth keep losing the money that we're losing on a daily basis? Are we going to come out ahead or behind on this? Um, I, I, I really don't believe that they—I think they misunderstood our resolve when we went out. I think they thought we could break us within the first two, two to three weeks. Um, what, what this has really done is, is what I've seen in my, my local facility is it's actually strengthened the resolve. People are mad. People are mad, and they're willing to stay out as long as it takes, because, uh, you know, we believe in what we're doing. We believe that in this country, the wealth keeps flowing up to the 1 percent and keeps going less and less to the 99 below. And we're going to have two uh, classes of, of people in this country pretty soon, the extremely wealthy and, and the poor. And uh, we decided that we had to draw a line in the sand and say enough's enough. Um, the silver lining in this situation is the support that we have received from our brothers and sisters of other unions, uh, Teamsters, SEIU, uh, uh, the teachers, uh, the, the bakers union. I'm, I'm talking about everybody, the steel workers. Um, they have come out in mass, not just to our facility, but to every facility in this country and helped out. They've walked the picket line with us. They brought food. Uh, they brought gift cards for some of our temporary employees that are struggling a little more. And uh, it's just been the outpouring of solidarity has, has really been an eye-opener, and it's a, a, welcome, a welcome thing, because uh, unions have been struggling for many years in this country, and it's nice to see that it's making a comeback and people are, are tired of the status quo. Well, Steve Friskwin, thank you so much for being with us. Striking GM worker, former president of UAW Local 722, currently a union steward. 
When we come back, we'll go to Chicago to speak with the head of the Chicago Teachers Union, which has voted to go on strike next week. Stay with us.
And welcome back to Leak the Review Tuesday edition. Oh, goodness. I'm going to share a few news headlines and then get back into some more pre-recorded interviews. This is from Frontline and PBS. 
go to pbs.org. Uh, Trump administration shifting to privatize migrant child detention. And this came out on October 3rd, 2019 by Garen Spurk from the AP and Martha Mendoza, also from the AP. And the story is part of an ongoing joint investigation between the Associated Press and Frontline on the treatment of migrant children, which includes an upcoming film. And please do check out this article. And uh, there's a bit of a, a video here. best that the children are borrowed they're borrowed for for our purpose right so a lot of times when something is borrowed you take care of them better than you would something that is your own so we want the children to leave here and say that they had a great experience and it says uh, AP and Frontline were given exclusive access to a shelter in Texas holding some of the youngest migrant children this is about uh, almost a four-minute video that they have shared with this article as well as a lot of script and it says the shelter is run by Comprehensive Health Services, a private for-profit company paid for by the U.S. government. In joint investigation, AP and Frontline learned that the Trump administration has started shifting caretaking of migrant children toward the private sector. There is a profit, there is a, a price incentive, but it's not a detention incentive. The, the question about is there an incentive to, to detain children, absolutely not. CHS is owned by Caliburn International Corp and is so far the only private company caring for children. Ugh, I cannot hear his fucking voice and I will not burden you with that as well. Former White House Chief of Staff John Kelly joined Caliburn's board after leaving the Trump administration. Shocking. Uh, as Homeland, as excuse me, as Secretary of Homeland Security Kelly, who was the person we played earlier who was interrupted, thankfully, supported a policy to separate children from their parents. And I'm going to saying it would deter people from migrating to the U.S. And I'm muting it so we don't have to hear Mike Pence's stupid voice. Then there's a cop talking. I also don't want to fucking hear from him. One privilege to running a show. You get to silence people in positions of power who cause great harm. If only it were this easy in other areas of life. Oh, let's go back. Of one of these companies. That doesn't pass us. Ugh. Okay, and they have more footage as well. Uh, Kelly was criticized after he was seen at Homestead, a large CHS-operated facility for migrant teens in Florida. At its peak, Homestead held about 2,400 children. All have now been transferred to other facilities or reunited with their families. One teenage girl who spoke with AP and Frontline said she and other children were constantly watched while held inside Homestead with alarms on the windows. And says it, it seemed pretty, I mean, it's pretty there, but at the same time, it wasn't. Because there were so many kids, so many rules, and every day was the same routine. And this kid says that she felt so alone. And says, well, it was kind of like camp, but it was also like prison. 
because I felt trapped. I felt frustrated and desperate. were getting the same amount of money over time to continue along the, with their operations. This is one of the so writers of the article, Garensburg. How does that sit with you morally? It's not something that, that sits with me um, morally as, as a problem, provided they meet the same. You know. Ugh. And again, it's so bizarre to me how people can wrap their minds around being parts of these companies that hold kidnapped children. They have more video footage and let's see. They're talking to a former DHS immigration official and there's more information at the story. Again, if you go to pbs.org and you can find much more info on this there. Ugh. Also, activists are pressuring lawmakers to stop Amazon Ring's police surveillance partnership, and that's an article at Vox.com. With no oversight and accountability, Amazon's technology creates a seamless and easily automated experience for police to request and access footage without a warrant and then store it indefinitely. That sounds terrifying. And this was written by Ronnie, and that's R-A-N-I, Mola, M-O-L-L-A. And you can follow Ronnie on Twitter. You can also find this article at Vox.com. starts off with more than 30 civil rights organizations, including Races, Media Justice, and the National Immigration Law Center, published a joint letter Tuesday asking lawmakers to end police partnerships with Amazon's ring. And you can find more information. Again, feeling pretty exhausted. I'm going to go now to... An interview that was on Democracy Now! That's about the case that was heard this morning um, from the SCOTUS case, and it's an interview with Laverne Cox and Chase Strangio. And you can find it again at democracynow.org. A new term today in Washington, D.C. The court will be hearing major cases this year involving reproductive rights, immigration, the Second Amendment, and LGBTQ rights. On Tuesday, the court will hear arguments in three cases to determine whether LGBTQ people can be fired from their jobs due to their sexual orientation or gender identity. It's been described as, quote, the most important case directly addressing LGBTQ people ever to reach the United States Supreme Court. Under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, employers cannot discriminate against employees on the basis of sex, as well as race, color, national origin and religion. But the Trump administration claims the law does not cover discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. One of the cases centers on a transgender woman from Michigan named Amy Stevens, who was fired from her job at a funeral home in 2013. When I was fired, it made me mad, to say the least. I was hurt that I was being treated that way after the commitment and service that I had been providing. Um, and that's when it finally hit home that we weren't treated the same as everybody else. 
and that it was time that somebody stood up and said enough is enough. The cases mark the first time the Supreme Court will rule on LGBTQ rights since conservative justice Brett Kavanaugh replaced Anthony Kennedy, who had written many of the court's major LGBTQ rights rulings. We are joined right now by two guests. Laverne Cox is with us, award-winning transgender actress, longtime trans rights activist, best known for her role of Sophia Brissett on the show Orange is the New Black. In 2014, she became the first first transgender person on the cover of Time magazine, and the first openly transgender person to be nominated for a primetime Emmy Award in an acting category. We're also joined by Chase Strangio, deputy director for transgender justice with the ACLU's LGBT and HIV project. His work includes impact litigation, as well as legislative and administrative advocacy on behalf of LGBTQ people and people living with HIV across the United States. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. Tuesday is a very significant day in the Supreme Court. Laverne Cox, talk about the cases that are before the high court. Well, it's the first time the Supreme Court will hear any case involving transgender rights, transgender civil rights, with Amy Stevens' case. And there's two other cases of, um, where two gay men were also fired from their jobs simply for being who they are. Um, this is the first time the court will hear um, case, um, cases about whether or not Title VII applies to the LGBTQ plus community. This has huge ramifications for us, because we know that this administration has been trying to take transgender people specifically, but the LGBTQ community in general, um, out of the realm of protections. Um, the leaked memo that we all remember from a year ago, um, where they want to change the definition of sex so that trans folks wouldn't have any recourse under the law, the protests that ensued after that, the um, new directive from HHS and from HUD, where they want to discriminate against us in housing and in health care. Um, so this is really huge, not just for the LGBTQ plus community, but for also any worker who might not conform to someone else's idea of how they should express their gender. Mm. So you did something very unusual at the Emmys. Uh, your guest, uh, your plus one, uh, was one Chase Strangio. Yes. And I wanted to go to, well, describe um, uh, the scene and why you decided to do this. Well, I, I noticed that not a lot of people were talking about this case. I think it's the most consequential civil rights case for LGBTQ rights in my lifetime. No one was really talking about it except Chase and a few other people. And I thought, what can I do? And so I was nominated for my third Emmy this year and was going to be going to the Emmys. And I knew that would be a platform where a lot of people would be paying attention. And so I, um, I was like, well, we should take Chase and we should talk about this case on the red carpet. My stylist got the idea of making a clutch that said <laughs> Title VII, October 8th, Supreme Court. Um, Edie Parker designed it. And we went and we went with the mission. And we're showing the images of that. Let's hear Chase on the red carpet with Laverne Cox. October 8th, everyone should be aware that the administration is asking the Supreme Court to make it legal to fire workers just because they're LGBTQ. And this is actually going to transform the lives of LGBTQ people and people who are not LGBTQ, anyone who departs from sex stereotypes, like all the fabulous people here, for example. So we really need to show up October 8th and pay attention because our lives are really on the line. 
So that's Chase Strangio of the ACLU, the um, plus one with Laverne Cox at the Emmys. Again, as I said earlier, uh, Laverne is the first openly trans actress to be nominated for a primetime Emmy in any acting category. Um, so you use that moment um, uh, where the world was watching. That was an interview on E! Chase. Describe further the significance of this case and the Trump administration's stance. How has it changed? Yeah, so, so, you know, as Laverne said, tomorrow the Supreme Court is going to be hearing arguments in these three cases that will absolutely transform the legal landscape for LGBTQ people, um, and not just LGBTQ people, but all women in particular, but anyone who, who departs from, from sex stereotypes. And, and what is really astounding, particularly in Amy Stevens' case, is that the case was filed uh, in 2014 by the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. That is the agency that enforces Title VII. And that agency brought the case, arguing that when Amy was fired, it violated Title VII. And so the case is actually the EEOC versus Harris Funeral Homes, the employer that fired Amy just because she, she is transgender. And so it went up through the courts um, in that posture. After the election, the presidential election of 2016, the ACLU intervened on behalf of Amy because we were concerned that uh, that the agency and the administration would no longer defend the rights of trans people under federal law, and, and for good reason, because now we are before the Supreme Court and the Trump administration has changed sides. The United States is siding with the employers, urging the Supreme Court to make a rule for everyone that it is lawful to fire someone just because they, they are LGBTQ. And I want people to understand that the arguments they are advancing are so incredibly, uh, like, staggeringly conservative and dangerous, because what they are saying is that we want a world under Title VII that goes all the way back to at least pre-1989 in the landmark case of Price Waterhouse, that allows employers to enforce sex stereotypes as long as they do so against men and women. And so what I mean by that is the Trump administration and the Alliance Defending Freedom, who is representing Amy's employer, really do want a world where a woman could be fired for not being feminine enough as long as they would fire a man for not being masculine enough. So imagine you go to work and you're a father and you say, I need to leave at five to care for my kids. And they fire you because they say, no, men are supposed to be working and women are supposed to be the primary caretakers of children. That is the world they want. And so this is really a radical transformation of sex discrimination law that they're asking for. Hmm. I want to go back to Amy Stevens, the woman behind the first transgender civil rights case to go before the Supreme Court. Speaking at an ACLU news conference last week, she explained her decision to come out as a transgender. Woman. I've been living basically two lives, one at home and in public, and one at work. And in the beginning, that wasn't so bad. But as time goes on and as time progressed, I got to the point that living two lives, being two people, was becoming downright impossible. And I knew that I couldn't keep going that way. And things came to a head in November of 2012, when I stood in the backyard with a gun to my chest, pondering the question, if I can't go forward and I can't go backwards, where does that leave me? 
this is all I have to look forward to, then what's the point of continuing? And in that hour, going over that and over that in my mind, I chose life. And I realized that I liked me too much to just disappear and go away. So that's Amy Stevens, the woman behind the first transgender civil rights case to go before the Supreme Court. Um, talk about the journey Amy Stevens' case took through the courts until now. So, so Amy Stevens' case was filed in federal court. Um, she won in, in the lower court, so the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled in her favor, as the majority of federal courts have for trans litigants. Um, it has actually been the law, you know, for two decades in many uh, circuits of, of, the, of the federal judiciary that firing someone or discriminating against someone because they are transgender is per se sex discrimination under the law, as well as a prohibition on the—as uh, well as a violation of the prohibition on sex stereotypes. So Amy won below. Um, this was, you know, the, the court said, no, you, you cannot fire someone just because they are transgender. Um, and then it was the employer and the United States that are now before the Supreme Court arguing for a rule that it is, in fact, lawful to fire someone um, for being transgender, and, and, we, and we represent Amy. I think something that's incredibly poignant about Amy's remarks and that the, the letter she sent her employer is, is that she was going to be the same person, the same valued employee, and she was living this deeply painful lie, and she needed to be who she was. We only get one chance to, to live our lives as who we are. And so she was going to be an even better worker, because she wasn't going to have to hide this core truth of herself. And she has the courage, she comes out, and then she gets fired, and has spent the last six years fighting the termination while she faces no job, lost her health care, you know, her health go, you know, is in decline because this is what happens when you lose your livelihood. And so hopefully we can appeal to the court on the simple proposition that Congress wrote a broad law that prohibits sex discrimination and it covers trans people as most lower courts have held. We're going to break and then come back to talk about the issue of violence against trans people and how you think that this links. Uh, we are speaking with Chase Strangio, Deputy Director for Transgender Justice. Um, with the ACLU's LBGT and HIV project, and actress Laverne Cox. Stay with us. All right, and welcome back to Weekly Review. Going to wrap up the show right now. Thanks so much for listening. I recognize it's been super low energy. However, there's a lot of information out there. Hopefully, we all can take some stuff away from this. also want to promote an event that's happening on October 18th, and this is 
uh, to close the 850 Bryant jail. So there's an event invite on Facebook. Join the effort to close 850 Bryant and build a better San Francisco. Come to the hearing on Friday, October 18th at 10.30 a.m. to hold our government accountable. Hashtag dismantle PIC. Hashtag shut down 850 Bryant. This was tweeted by the Coalition on Homelessness. You can follow them on Twitter at the Coalition SF. You can also follow me on Twitter. I share a lot of these this information that I don't always get to on the show at R-O-M-A-N-R-I-M-E-R. And plug for the station mutinyradio.fm we got shows here every day of the week so please donate and check out shows that are here and also think that yeah there's something else but we're gonna just wrap up with some more music thanks so much for tuning in we'll be back with another pre-recorded show next week have a great week everybody
Law Tigers. We fight for motorcyclists. We're not just motorcycle lawyers. We're part of the riding community. Law Tigers watches over riders. If you're injured in a motorcycle accident, we'll help you get your motorcycle repaired or replaced and assist you with your damaged gear, too. We're by your side every step of the way. With the Law Tigers, you never ride alone. If you're injured in a motorcycle accident, call 1-800-LAW-TIGERS or visit us on the web at lawtigers.com. The Law Tigers, California's motorcycle lawyer. Victor Davis, Harris Law Firm, LLP, 180 Permanent Circle, Suite 300, Sacramento, California, 2 to 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on MutinyRadio.fm for Let's Watch a Full-Length Movie on YouTube. We watch the best movies that, uh, aren't they good? Well, they're chosen by uh, Here's you. his theme song again. Bye. Okay, bye. Watch
Apply now for the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival 2020 coming up March 1st through 7th, 2020. But you can apply now through November 30th. 50 shows in seven days, over 50 comics from all around the U.S., and you could be one of them. Go to the Mutiny Radio website, www.mutinyradio.fm. Click the Apply button. Pay that 20 bucks. Donate to Mutiny Radio and apply with your five-minute video to the Mutiny Radio 5th Annual Comedy Festival coming up March 1st through 7th, 2020. Submissions close November 30th. Get those submissions in now. Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be like in front of an audience, like other than like squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Oh, shoot. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to Joke Workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! Hungry for a burger? Mutiny Radio thinks you'll find the best burger in San Francisco at Counter Offer, located inside Bender's Bar and Grill. Counter Offer's menu aims to please your drunk face. Tater tots are served daily. On Tuesday nights, Counter Offer serves specials off the Taco Bell menu, only better. You can enjoy your favorite Taco Bell item without the guilt. Counter Offer uses only fresh ingredients and never store bought shit. Special ingredients are made from scratch daily, including beans, ketchup, mustard, habanero sauce, and ranch dressing. Counter Offer even serves vegan mac and cheese. All of this great food is served 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. daily and until 11 p.m. on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Counter Offer is located inside Bender's Bar and Grill at 806 South Van S. Be sure to tell them Mutiny sent you. Counter Offer, baby. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> C- 
subliminal SF visual and auditory mind control brings you the best, coolest t-shirt and hoodie designs and mind-bending local bands and shows at venues all over San Francisco and the Bay Area. Subliminal SF is here to destroy your sense of normalcy and plant ideas in your skull to make you cooler and a more awesome person. Check out all the badass products at subliminalsf.myshopify.com. That's subliminalsf.myshopify.com. And experience Subliminal SF. in San Francisco comedy scene. Maybe you want time to do jokes. Well, this is the place to do it. Mutiny Radio. We have three open mic a week just for you. Monday's joke workshop from 6 to 8. Come and get four minutes and four minutes of commentary from your comedian peers. Come on Fridays for happy hour 6 to 8 here at Mutiny Radio. All the comics wonderful hilarious people in the scene get to know them hang out do a set have it recorded here and on a podcast at mutinyradio.fm and come in on saturdays from four to six get long sets because no one ever shows up so it's like stage time and people can listen come on by to mutiny radio get your comedy on baby Tigers, you never have to ride alone. Even though we're lawyers, riding is in our blood. Trust Law Tigers to help after a motorcycle accident. Without representation, there are no guarantees you'll get a fair shake. Call 1-800-LAWTIGERS, that's 529-8443, or visit their website at lawtigers.com for a motorcycle lawyer in any state. That's Law Tigers, Americans Motorcycle Lawyers at www.lawtigers.com. Never ride alone. Law Tigers, we fight for motorcyclists. We're not just motorcycle lawyers, we're part of the riding community. Law Tigers watches over riders. If you're injured in a motorcycle accident, we'll help you get your motorcycle repaired or replaced and assist you with your damaged gear too. We're by your side every step of the way. With the Law Tigers, you never ride alone. If you're injured in a motorcycle accident, call 1-800-LAW-TIGERS or visit us on the web at lawtigers.com. The Law Tigers, California's motorcycle lawyer. Here's Law Firm LLP, 180 Permanent Circle, Suite 300, Sacramento, California, 95834. 